You're listening to Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of Mex, and on this episode, Alex Guest and I sat down for a chat with Ruby Steele, a designer at Smart Design in London. Now, quite apart from being an accomplished designer at Smart, which I guess is one of the most well-known agencies in the area of user-centered design, Ruby was also recently part of the design team in the BBC television series, The Big Life Fix. Now, this is a program which has been really showcasing the potential for design to impact people's lives by challenging designers from a variety of different disciplines to improve a life issue for a particular person or a particular group. So what I recommend before you listen to the rest of our podcast is go to our show notes at mobileuserexperience.com and click on the link to watch the summary of Ruby's episode of The Big Life Fix. This is where she and the team help a man who's had a stroke and was unable to speak or move, suffering from something that they describe as locked-in syndrome, and they help him to communicate with his family again using digital technology. We talk about it with Ruby in the podcast, but I think you really need to see a little of the program to understand just what a challenge the patient, Graham, and his family, and Ruby, and the other designers were trying to overcome. We recorded in Smart Studio in London, uh, and we go on to talk with Ruby about her early motivations for getting into design, her work on multi-sensory and inclusive design projects, and how digital itself is becoming far more multi-dimensional. So here's me, my co-host, Alex Guest, and Ruby Steele. Hope you enjoy the conversation. When you think back here for you personally, can you put your finger on a time when you started to think of yourself as a possibly not a designer per se, but a problem solver. You started to realise that was something that interested you because I think often, yeah, with a lot of people we've spoken to on the podcast, there's that sort of yeah. moment where you realise you don't necessarily realise that's going to be a route which leads to becoming a designer. But with hindsight, you can see yeah. that's sort of where it started. Uh, I actually, I actually really can because I have thought about it a lot. I always knew I was creative. I mean, at school, I always knew I was creative, but. Um, there was a moment when I think I must have been about 17 and a woman came to my school to talk about her experiences um, of living with HIV and I just remember as a sort of a young impressionable girl I was so impressed with her her honesty and her ability to tell her own story and at the same time I was so deeply saddened by it because basically what happened to her is she contracted the virus when she was really young like 22 or something and um, 
it was, you know, she obviously had the kind of health condition to, to deal with, but it was the social stigma. It was everything yeah. around it, but like the people were treating her differently. Yeah. You know, I remember kind of thinking, wow, what, what an extraordinary thing. And how could I, how could I use what I can do to sort of, in, you know, sort of impact someone like someone like her? Like, how could I improve her experience of, you know, the way that she, yeah, the, the way that she's kind of dealing with her condition? And I suppose it was it was a very small seed. I didn't know what the answer was at that stage, but I kind of knew that yeah. that was my drive. And then I kind of yeah, sort of went off into the into my education to see how I could figure that out. Did that then influence the educational path you took through A-levels and choice of university? Yeah, it did. I mean, I like I said, I, I knew I was creative, so I knew I wanted to go to art school. I didn't know which area of art or design that I wanted to kind of do. At that stage, I was quite into communications and behaviour change, and I thought, you know, maybe I could, you know, whether that would be, um, you know, there are different ways of doing that. There's sort of like journalism or there's kind of, you know, sort of campaigning or, or, or things like that and because, because I was already creative and I wanted to go to art school when I got to art school and I was studying you know I was learning things about like product design and graphic design I, every time I was looking at that discipline and thinking like okay so how could this do something kind of worthwhile mm-hmm. so if it was advertising it would be you know how can you communicate how can you communicate what I felt when I saw her talk to someone else you know how can I use media how can I use film so that so that other people feel it and therefore that perception of her that stigma around her could change but then from like a product design point of view it's kind of like well what are some of the other challenges that she's got um and actually in her case it was things like you know remembering to take medication so all of a sudden it's like well you could actually make a thing to help her Mm -hmm. so there's lots of different sort of ways and I suppose I I was kind of applying that when I was experimenting with different paths yeah, and that communication challenge is really interesting because I think that's something which people, you know, working within agency environments, in-house teams, um, sometimes they underestimate, you know, the, no matter how great the solution is at an objective level that you come up with in response to a problem, there's then that additional challenge of bringing the people along, be they clients, be they stakeholders within the company on that journey. And it, I mean, we've talked about it in various ways in the next initiative over the years, yeah, people have talked about techniques they've used, um, coming and presenting at the conference or come on the podcast, and it remains a really big challenge for everyone. Absolutely. No matter what stage of career you're at, no. you still have that challenge of, well, how do we get people to buy into this? Convincing and, you know, people of yeah. things. Yeah, it's such an art. It really is. And especially as, you know, I think it's one thing kind of convincing someone of or communicating the importance of something, but there's also the challenges of, I mean, say, say you create a thing for, that has like a really direct impact on someone's life and it's really great, but then there's also, you know, how, how is that going to work as a business? And other people might be hard to convince or hard to communicate to because they've got other things influencing them that are kind of out of your reach. So you can sort of sell the idea as well as you possibly can, but if you're not answering the things that are pressurising them, the things that really are important to them, yeah. then then it's not going to work. So I think, yeah, sort of uh, communication, but also understanding like the holistic, like the whole picture of whatever it is that you're, and to, you're doing. To, to, to what extent did your, I, I guess, education to an extent, but also your training after that and, and, and your experience 
actually helps you not so much just learn the techniques of design and so forth, but actually help you with that, that, that sort of that selling part. Because it seems that you know to be a to be a great designer, you also have to be a great communicator. And I, and I wonder how much of the the training that people get in their early career really is around that part of it. Yeah, I mean storytelling. Mm. It's amazing what a significant role that plays. I mean, I think to be honest, it's just something that you every time you try to tell a story, every time you try to communicate something, you kind of get better at it you you realize that actually you know cutting down the waffle or you know un- take removing the unnecessary detail from something and you know getting to the point or understanding your audience you know um therefore knowing what is going to really kind of um uh, resonate with them um i i'd say that i mean certainly at the royal college um a big part of what we were taught to do was to you know, we're constantly giving presentations, we're constantly defending our ideas or and having people throwing questions at you saying, well, what about this and what about this? So you kind of, I think I've done, I mean, I've done that my whole career, really. <laughs> you know, you've, you have critics and then the same is true within a, a, a studio like Smart. Like we're always asking each other, what about this? So you end up being so, you've thought about it so much that the story kind of is born out of that and then you just have to, yeah, craft it and make it clear. So one of the reasons I guess we got together to record the podcast was the inspiration from your BBC program. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it strikes me that that, in many ways, is the ultimate communications challenge because yeah. there you're not just talking about reaching clients, you know, at a one-to-one level or you know, one to a meeting room full of people. I mean, that was something which was broadcast to hundreds, thousands millions of people potentially on the, the BBC. Were you aware of the, the sort of additional scale of that going into the design challenge? Or did you just look at it as you know, any other design challenge as if you were doing it for a client group of, of two or three people? Yeah, um, it's a really, really interesting question because I think um, as a designer you are yeah, sort of always reflecting on how, how you're going to communicate something. But with this, it was... The audience was so broad that you know it was it was quite challenging. I mean, I'd say that really the the art form came from the makers of the program, really, because you know they had they had an idea of how they were going to extract the story and be able to sort of get that the kind of like the emotional value across and the the, the points that mattered the most. Um, and I think it just came down to sort of there was a huge amount of footage that they just had to kind of trail through through and I know they were kind of looking for those those little micro moments uh, you know sort of like looks on people's faces and mm-hmm. I don't know just ways for the you know the humans in the audience to connect with the humans on the screen so it was all about yeah it was all about people it's all about getting people to think that could be me somehow you know to somehow imagine themselves in that Place. I, I suppose we ought to describe what that place was and what the programme actually was. Yeah, for those of you who haven't seen it, I mean, um, what did you know going into it? I mean, the, the, I've seen the, the, the programme, a, a summary of it, which I found fascinating, and, and I guess it, it's very much a story about the role of design being able to make an impact in one very particular person's life. Yes. I mean, the, the, the example that I saw. 
But what, what were you told going into it about who you were going to be designing for and, and why you, you were going to be designing for? Um, we actually didn't know anything about who we were going to be designing for. We just knew that the concept was to take a team of designers that were kind of carefully um, selected from across the UK to kind of form um, almost sort of a, a mini design consultancy by sort of representing all the disciplines so people like me I'm you know design strategist human-centered designer and then we had coders we had material scientists we had product designers engineers so we kind of we were kind of as well represented as possible like and then a design dream team a design, yeah. a design dream team as much as could be managed um, and then the idea was that the the challenges or you know that were were facing individuals again across the UK were supposed you know were then sort of presented to us as a team and we were we would find a way to well in some cases kind of identify what it was that would be most useful and then find a way of making it so um yeah we were told that as a as a general premise we knew that there were going to be nine cases um and that we'd be working as a team but that we would be kind of um semi-leading some of them um, sort of in the, either individually or in pairs. So how many were you involved with personally? Was it uh, two? Two, two yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, yeah, out of the nine, um, I was sort of on on two of the kind of the projects, as it were, which was mainly because I just couldn't physically do. I you know we wanted to kind of cross pollinate as much as we could, but yeah. there was it was such a lot of work that we were all we were all trying to. Um, sort of you know kind of kind of get it done but we did do you know we had we were constantly in contact with each other so as or even though we were were remote we tried to recreate that open studio thing where you know you're all kind of just like oh well, I, I saw this and then oh I, I actually saw this the other day this um you know Ruby this will actually will help with your project and then I might see something and, and say oh Jude with you know why don't you do this and so um yeah. So which one did you do first? Because there were the, the two you were involved with, but in yeah. the, the chronology of the program, which one came came first? Um, I was doing both of them at the same time. Oh, so, so, yeah. Right. Um, so they all ran at the same time, and um, the way that it structured was because um, it was interesting because you kind of had the design project, but then you had the filming, and they were kind of two streams running alongside each other. So. Um, we would do what you'd need to do for the design process, i.e. go out and research and then do brainstorms and come up with ideas and then test them and then all this stuff. But then sometimes, you know, we, we had to kind of then capture that as a on film. So you might have to go back and say, um, okay, we need to create the moment, you know, the, by which you were, you were doing this. Um, I mean, where, wherever possible, the, the, the crew were great they basically just kind of followed us around and just let us do our thing and then they could you know take what they needed afterwards and we also used heavily used um, diary cams sure so we were all given a diary cam and um, it was yeah we because a lot of the work was done kind of like all over the place like at home or in like at the smart studio or wherever it was so I was sort of holding my diary camera and talking into it like a mad person on my own and how, then how did that feel doing that I mean I, I can't imagine uh, you know actually, but we, on the way here we were talking about this this idea of sort of you know um, filming yourself on video to Instagram and doing all these things which which to me I just I just can't get into that naturally I've tried and it just doesn't work for me <laughs> um, but I know a lot of people do so it I, is I don't difficult know, I it's don't know really difficult um, well <laughs> I actually found the diary cam not too bad because 
you know, when you're when you're thinking about something anyway, I basically, you know, you just kind of pretend it's a person. You're just talking to this little robot person, and you know, <laughs> you know uh, sometimes. Really have to become used to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is the future. Um, so, I mean, sometimes I'd have, um, you know, someone there behind the diary cam, so I'm kind of half talking to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I didn't find it too bad. The only thing I really didn't like is if I was ever asked to talk directly into the big cameras, because that completely, I couldn't do that. I totally froze <laughs> because it's so huge and you're very aware that you're yeah. talking into a... Sort of steps it up a level. Yeah, it kind of steps it up a level. But yeah, the, the diary camera kind of got used to it. I mean, the poor people editing that program, the, how many hours of footage they had to go through, because you never really know what, where the useful point is. No. So a lot of it is just kind of, you know one of us, one of the designers kind of like fiddling around for ages, just like trying to, you know, and then, uh, you know, or, or talking about something, but, you know, there can be golden moments and you can't, you can't recreate them. And that's, I think, where the kind of, um, where the program did really well is by going to the effort of letting us just do our thing and kind of have this sort of semi-fly wall diary cam and then pulling out the story from that made it very real um so i think it was it was hard work for them but paid off so I mean, let's talk about one of the stories specifically graham yeah so what was the challenge with graham uh, for those who haven't seen the, the yeah. program and what did you design for him uh so graham is um a man um, i think he's probably 57 now um, um, he suffered a stroke about two years ago and is currently living with locked-in syndrome. So locked-in syndrome, for those that don't know, is um, is basically a condition where you're totally paralysed, you're um, unable to speak. Um, Graham himself has actually got, he's got some movement in his, in his head um, and some movement in, in one of his hands. Um, but, you know, it the reason they call it locked in syndrome is it is kind of like being a prisoner in your own body. I mean, it's it's pretty. I mean, he's fully conscious, right? So. Oh yeah, sorry, yeah, didn't mention that. He's totally, totally conscious, and he can hear completely as you or I. He can see completely. Um, so he's just sort of he's trapped and unable to communicate. So the challenge for him was. Um, or one of the challenges for him that was a particular frustration was not being able to communicate um, with his loved ones or anyone around him effectively. When we met him, he was um, painstakingly typing things out on an iPad using a stylus, so sort of constructing sentences like that, but it was really slow. And as you can imagine, you know, that form of communication is, is pretty basic and ineffective you know if you say something and I want to react to it and it takes me several seconds or you know minutes sometimes to actually say what I want to say then the the moment's passed and so you just you can kind of imagine that there'd be times when he just thought it's not worth me even saying it you know or well and also the fact that he wasn't able to to say it in his own voice anymore yeah which um, you know is I guess it, it is difficult to get your head around what it must be like to have suddenly your communication options so yeah. so limited. He was really he was really um, anti the idea of a robot voice. Mm-hmm. He kind of deci- had decided because I mean that the app that he was using using originally would have um, been able to read the sentences out mm-hmm. with with a voice, but he just 
he really didn't like that. Like he, that was just something he didn't want. So um, uh, yeah, the sort of the loss of his the loss of his voice was something that was very 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 hard for him and well his whole family really. I remember his wife saying um, quite right at the beginning of the process that she just she just really wished that she could hear his voice again and she wished she had a recording of it which at that point she she didn't have and she was actually urging me to go home and record the voice of my loved ones she was just like just do it because you never know you she's like you have no idea what it feels like to not have that which was really I mean I really really couldn't stop thinking about that for days because every time my my boyfriend said something I was just thinking what if I never heard you your voice again it's something it's the ultimate thing you take for granted isn't it's the ability to speak and communicate something we do so naturally all the time you just don't think what it would be like to to not be able to do that and and so have you recorded have we have have you recorded your 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 loved one's voices i did actually i was i did record a couple of messages but um i actually I, i i do quite like filming things quite a lot like i film like you know my family and just just like little clips because yeah it's something that you know i just kind of enjoy um, but you know, it, it's it makes you more conscious of it. It makes you think, um, and it's true. I mean, I mean, my, I've got sort of like little bits of video of like my grandfather, for example, who died, and you know, they're so precious once someone's gone. Um, so yeah. So once you started to get an understanding of, I suppose those those preferences or the things influencing him as a potential user how, how did you go from that to then starting to create something to, to help the situation that, that he and his family found themselves in so the, the 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 team obviously we were kind of all feeding into each other it was kind of myself and uh, ross atkins on that were sort of doing this um kind of working the most on this mm. project um uh, ross atkins actually um has had a lot of experience um designing for people with disabilities so um, he's very knowledgeable and that was a really great way of sort of starting to research what's already out there and kind of, you know, get an idea of, you know, part of what we wanted to do was sort of do an, a, a kind of an audit of what the, the potential products were. So we were able to kind of test some of those out. Um, it was really, really important to us to co-create as much as possible with Graham. We didn't want to, because communication was his problem we didn't want to make any assumptions about what we were designing but that's obviously difficult because you know you can't have like a free-flowing conversation like you would with other um other people you know as in, a, in a normal design process you might kind of interview someone and really talk as well as kind of you know do ethnography observation and, and watch them whereas with graham you know basically we didn't have any of that so um one of the things that we did was we tried to kind of create exercises that would help us identify what help him tell us what he wanted without tiring him out because i think the first time we met him we sort of he was replying to us on his ipad for about two hours and it but it absolutely that was it for the day like he couldn't he can only communicate because it it takes all his energy to 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 do to to use what he was using so um, we kind of had to fold that into our thinking and we uh, ended up creating an exercise where we had these design criteria and we were asking him to just say yes or no to, um, to help prioritise them. So we kind of brainstormed a load of um, criteria, which were things like, 
I want my I want the solution to be as fast as possible. I want the solution to be as um, accurate to my feeling as possible. I want it to have intonation. I want it to have. I want to be able to write to to express myself with really long sentences. I, so we were able to kind of then say to him, right, what's top priority? What's kind of middle priority? And what doesn't matter? Mm-hmm. And that like resulted in our design brief. Um, and then we could ideate around that. Was there a particular breakthrough moment for you when you felt like it was coming together towards something that was going to be able to respond to the requirements that it indicated to you? Um, I think that we, I mean, we kind of had a couple of kind of of sort of breakthrough moments when we, I mean, the sort of every time we went to see him, we had we came back with another aha. Like this is what really matters. Mm. So, I'd say they were kind of more, um, you know, scattered throughout the the process. But um, certainly, um, one of them was um, this idea about kind of reaction and giving him giving him the kind of the speed to react to things that were going on around him, kind of giving him presence in the room again. So that so it was kind of about understand that that timing was was kind of everything so that was a really key moment um we also he had such a he's got such a great sense of humor and he's really like a really kind of cheeky kind of guy so that kind of inspired us to be um quite sort of a little bit bold in some of the thinking because the the final product um has sort of different things that it can do but one of one of the elements of it is that he really, you know, he quite liked the idea of instead of a robot voice using um, clips from TV and film mm-hmm. um, to express himself. So that was sort of an idea we had because it was kind of because of his character. And then when we we were constantly testing things out with him, so it, yeah, that it was kind of like having emoji in a sense. Um, but yeah, we talked about it like yeah. that. Yeah, because actually. I think one of the reasons that emojis have taken off as much as they have is that they they are they are really expressive. Yeah. I mean, they're silly and cartoony. Mm. And you can't really ever say anything serious with them, but <laughs> maybe, maybe you can. Um, not too serious. No, yeah, yeah. Not too There's serious. a playfulness to them. There's a playfulness yeah. to them, but they're really effective. So yeah, we, it was that kind of thing. It was like how if you take communication as a kind of as a baseline what is it about it that really helps create that human connection which is what really matters because that's what it was all about at the end of the, at the end of the day it was about him like connecting to you know other people yeah. in the same way that other people would take for granted I mean it was powerful stuff and I remember watching the the summary of the, the program and that moment when he is able to communicate in his own voice with the people around him I mean, yeah, that was really quite a touching thing. I can't imagine what it must have been like for you, you know, having worked on the project and seeing the way he was, the frustrations that he had to understand what it meant for his family. I mean, what did that feel like for you when you saw not only what he was able to do, but what the first thing that he chose to say yeah. to his, his loved ones? Yeah, it was, um, it was really, really extraordinary. I mean, we had been working around the clock. I think Ross on the particular day when we actually kind of like gave the, 
the, the final thing to Graham had not actually slept at all the night before. So you know how kind of, <laughs> kind of like vulnerable you are in that kind of situation. So I remember standing outside with Simon and Ross, so Simon, the, the presenter, before going in and I was just like this is this is a moment that I'm going to remember for the rest of my life but we were also terrified because mm-hmm. we were like we obviously we, we designed it as much as we could to suit his needs but we were still giving him on that day we were still giving him something that contained his voice and we were at, you know we were like we don't know how he's going to react to this he might not react well you don't know like psychologically like how that's going to affect someone so it was a sort of a mixture of you kind of felt kind of like the gravitas of the situation of like this is such you know this is such a big deal and as a designer you don't do that very often if at all you know but you know your final product it's it will go out to like a group of people rather than just one person sort of you know being presented one thing yeah it's interesting I guess that amplifies the the meaning in that moment of it does it's it does like you're, you're able to abstract yourself from it in that you're presenting you know, a business plan or some designs which might then several months later go into to production. This yeah. is here now in the moment with one, one person. Yeah, so it really, you know, it's something I'll never ever forget, but we, we kind of went in and, and gave him the app, which I should explain how the app actually worked. It was, um, it was basically, we designed it and called it the reaction pad because it was all about how he could react to things. Um, and communi- sort of communicate what he was feeling at a given moment. So it was a kind of tiled interface with um, sort of sound bites um, for each tile, as well as an environmentals tab, which meant that he could control things around him, like the lights, sort of turning the heating up and down and things like that. So it was all about kind of react- yeah, reacting to and actually being able to do something about it. And then Ross had built bespoke um, controllers, Bluetooth controllers, because... Graham had very specific needs as to how he would actually be able to to use an app. I mean, you could, using an iPad wouldn't always work. It would get very, very heavy on his lap. And, you know, he, sometimes he wouldn't have as much reach with his sort of the movement he did have as other days. So you kind of had to have different ways. So we had um, um, a D-pad that meant a, a sort of deep control so that he could kind of, um, because it was a grid system, he could kind of select. And because it was Bluetooth, he didn't actually even have to, have the iPad to look at, he could almost memorise where the different, if, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. the different commands were. So the the element with his voice actually came quite late in the process because up until that point, we were populating it all with clips from TV and film and so, so that it never had, so that it always had a bit of personality. Um, but then about three, yeah, about three weeks before the final deliverable date, um, Zoe, his wife, found all these um, videos in the attic of home videos where Graham's actually talking. So we were able to use those, use the sound from those videos to um, extract things that he said to both kind of pull out things like um, yes and no and please and things, you know, sound things, but, um, but also create new sentences. Well, so how extensive a vocabulary were you able to create of? I think we had about a hundred phrases or something, uh, but so it's not. But so it's not like a full, you know, a full vocabulary. But he, you know, the the point of it was, as we kind of defined in the beginning, wasn't about length of just you know of articulation or something. It was more about 
I want to be able to say yes right now because mm-hmm. uh, it's quickly it's quick and easy or I want to be able to laugh or I want to you know what I mean it's, it's sort of um, uh, you can actually get a fair way with 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 a sort of simple broken down um, and, and in his own voice as well which is yeah. going back to what you were saying earlier about giving him the ability to be back in the room with people yeah. in a way that you yeah. know, he had been excluded from what yeah. had happened to him one of the best moments um, on the day was when he um, he interrupted Simon so Simon obviously is there to be asking questions and um, I think because one of the things that I we know was very frustrating for Graham was when people tried to guess what he said or were talking over him and it was so easy to do like you sort of went in and you didn't want to do it but you, it's a willing you're trying to help you're trying to be like oh do you mean this but it yeah. was really really frustrating for him so um, it was very satisfying to see him kind of be able to use the, the app that quickly that he stopped Simon and mm-hmm. unanswered his question before he'd even, even finished saying it yeah it must have been a while since he'd last interrupted someone yeah, yeah. exactly exactly <laughs> <laughs> but just the pleasure of that <laughs> yeah he also had a lot of swear words because um, <laughs> he, he liked he liked being able to swear yeah well, well fair enough it's a dangerous power to yeah 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 so. <laughs> I'm sure his family will come to love it yeah yeah <laughs> um, so one of the things that I noticed with a lot of the design work you've done we've talked a lot about this particular project because it was such a, a, a it, it really it had such meaning to it you know as you say and amplified I think because you were able to do it for one very particular individual and make a real difference to their life but in this and in several other of your projects, there seems to be a bit of a, a couple of running themes really that I've noticed. One is that um, they tend to be quite multi-sensory. I mean, with this, as you say, you were using physical Bluetooth controllers. There were elements of audio design within it as well. There was obviously the touchscreen interface too, but also with some of the other work that you've done, uh, yeah, there always seems to be an element of multiple touch points and different ways of engaging people's senses where did that come from um i mean i think that that's it it sort of comes from wanting to be holistic in the way that i approach something you know you kind of one one kind of media can be quite restricting and as humans we will we will speak and we will listen and we will watch and we will move around you know it's in a kind of you know, it's a three-dimensional world, so mm. you want to kind of play to that. And I think that senses can be um, so powerful if, if used in in the right way. I I think it's probably just something that I've found effective and therefore like to do. Um, so, when you've done those kind of projects in the past, has that caused you to then learn about those different? sensory dimensions as a designer to extend your skills beyond the visual um, or has that been a case of working with specialists in those areas and getting up to speed with it or a mixture of the two? Probably a mixture of the two. I mean, I, I do like to, to experiment and and create with people that I'm designing for. So, uh, but, then I'm, but, but also kind of test things out myself. So, I mean, I did a project while I was at the Royal College um, that was designing... Well, the idea was to design a new craft for um, blind craftspeople in India. So we were out in India, and you know the brief was to try and um, was to, to invent a new craft, which is very RCA kind of um, brief. No, no, no small challenge. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
because craft is such a kind of there's such an amazing craft culture in India but it's something that is like beginning to kind of um, you know fade away a little bit so it was about how can we kind of reinvigorate this and um, working we were working with um, these blind um, craft women um, actually who were um, making they were making jewellery but we were kind of watching them and thinking the problem is is that they they've got so obviously they can use like tactility as a way of like feeling things and making to sort of design things but they were kind of being given uh, a formula you know so making necklaces and it was kind of like this beat and this beat and this beat and um and i suppose that it was a combination of just watching them and thinking like how what senses do they have that they could use to kind of be incorporated into that um design process and you know, I mean, they say that um, sometimes blind people will have a heightened sense of smell. I don't think that's necessarily true, but I think that I've heard that that's not actually true. But but I think that if you do sort of, you know, take your sight away and focus on just one sense, because you're focusing in on it, I think you can become more aware. So what we did is we um, we scented different beads and made a kind of toolkit of um different coloured beads with different scents so we were very strict about we said you know green was a certain green would be a certain smell and then a certain blue would be a certain smell and so that they could use the smells to to create um, their own pieces and as always we were just experimenting with it so we were trying this out and and it was really effective because you know they were designing things which visually kind of like well they were just really really interesting because you could see where it was kind of like strong smell um you know kind of like uh more subdued more subdued strong more subdued more subdued mm. so it was kind of so like almost like, like patterns of scent patterns yeah. of scent yeah. um and yeah we i mean the idea was to try and kind of empower empower them to sort of be doing something that actually a sighted person probably wouldn't even do. And, and it sounds like you're basically taking them from being a worker who's just stringing beads together according to a formula into, into actually a craftsperson. Exactly. That was the intention. Um, and I think that, it, yeah, it's, it's always about trying to see how people respond to things. And, um, and it was funny because we had, like, the, the environment that, the, that, they'd been work, that they were working in was, you know, they were being told what to do by people. So actually, at first, when we were kind of giving them this, they didn't really know what to do because they weren't used to it. But um, so it was kind of a process to get them to to to, to realise that they could do it themselves. It's something which I think feels like quite an emerging area within digital design at the moment as well. These additional sensory dimensions are starting to become available to people who design digital experiences of one kind or another. And we've been quite interested in this within the Mexican Institute generally and done a few things around trying to get people to, to think about it. And that challenge around the tools that people can use to do that as designers feels like a pretty big one, but a fairly unanswered one at the moment because it, it's very, it was quite disjointed. And there are great tools for doing some stuff around visual, there's some great tools for doing stuff around audio design, but not much integration between them. And then once you start adding in things like haptics or elements of 3D and virtual reality, it becomes an even more complex picture. Is this something that you're encountering in the day-to-day of what you're doing with with smart yet, or is that still further off into the future, do you think? I think that um, 
I mean, sort of for me right now, I'd say it's further off into the future, but it's definitely a question that a lot of designers are going to be thinking about because people in general are beginning to crave that, I think, mm. you know, like we're, people are so saturated with digital and kind of like visual things. You know, we did a big study at Smart recently looking at the um, generation um, Z, the sort of the newest generation, mm. the ones that have literally grown up and they don't understand what an iPhone is, mm. um, like don't, don't understand what a smartphone is, a phone is that doesn't have a screen, you know, this kind yeah. of thing, like a regular phone, all this kind of stuff. And, um, and one of the things that I sort of, I interview quite a few, you know, young, young people and there's a real sense of what, how can I experience the world without it just being, you know, a screen basically, you know, how can you, how can you, so actually things become really popular where, where like you say, the, the other senses are being taken into consideration sort of you know, shop design where they're actually there, they they designed the smell that goes into the shop or they've, you know, designed the space that you're kind of moving around or the light and the, and the, you know, the feel of things. So I think as designers, we just have to keep upping our, our game really and being aware that human beings have lots of different senses that need to be kind of tapped into. Yeah. It makes me wonder whether it's whether it is a new thing at all, because like looking back at the projects that you've been involved with, they've they've had lots of those multi-sensory elements in them. And if you think about you know, classical design education, there there is always that sort of multi-sensory approach. It's just that digital, maybe because it's been such a a new um, exciting thing in itself mm-hmm. it's become very focused on what you can do in that particular medium which to date has basically been about you know, flat canvases and mm-hmm. pixels mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it's focused people very tightly in on what you can do within that xy axis of, yeah. of pixels and some of those multi-sensory elements which would be involved in any good design project have been by the wayside for the moment, but as they start to become available, perhaps we'll just see a return to those classical design principles. Yeah, definitely. And I think that digital has got certain elements to it that are so powerful. Design has kind of been working out what it can do with that. So connectivity, for example, you know, the fact that you can now communicate with someone across the other side of the world, but or, or, or spread ideas or kind of, you know, all, all these kind of different things. I think that you kind of, I think design has been quite focused in that aspect of digital and that maybe, you know, it's kind of like an evolution that um, means that some of the sensory stuff, sensory stuff has been not left behind, but sort of, you know, deprioritized a little bit because um, because of the other things that digital can do. And I think, but I think that that's like, going to start to change now that we're kind of we've acclimatized and we're used to being we get really impatient when things aren't super fast and you know you want to find out a piece of information you can just find out straight away Um, and now that we're kind of we're the new version of not the new version of humans but you know we're we're kind of we're used to that it's like what um, what next so it's like you know what can you add on to that yeah, I, I also wonder whether you know the, the sort of the, the flat canvas uh, as you described it, Marek. You know that's that's almost the easier side of things. Things that are you know kinesthetic and and and, and you know who knows potentially we end up going into into scent based things 
you know, people have dreamt about this for for many, many years. But mm-hmm. I, I wonder if they, those things are, are much more difficult to do. And so they've, they've, they've taken the back seat while seemingly easier things, seemingly more immediate things have been, have been looked after in the meantime. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that um, there's, there's all sorts of kind of interesting explorations going on all the time. And um, certainly some of the research that we did with Big Life Fix for, you know, some of the kind of... The, the, other, the other project that I did was... Um, designing an, an app for a blind woman to help her get around so again it was it was all about kind of thinking about how you move around space when you can't see and and, and I think you know the the drive is there and things are happening but it's just still on its still on its way I mean you've done some some amazing things so far in your career and I guess for a lot of designers, you know, if your career were to stop tomorrow, you probably already would have done a great deal more than the main, which is is great. But I mean, do you do you think to the future about things that you haven't yet had a chance to do that you'd like to get stuck into? Is there a, a dream project out there that you would love to have a go at? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for one one of the things is that a lot of the work that I've done so far has been. In a, in a sense kind of well so the, you know big like this and sort of stuff that I've done at the RCA like the, the projects I've mentioned were very targeted for just a, a small group of people I think the next level is to to continue doing work where you're where you are influencing a bigger a bigger group I mean I I've always been very interested in um, how design and technology can assist the aging population I feel like there's a lot left to be um, figured out there because people are getting older and older and living for longer and longer and that population is growing but it's not particularly it's not like the sexiest you know most exciting area but um, I yeah I'd love to do more work in in that kind of area and sort of get young designers interested in in that kind of area. The potential for impact is huge and it's one of the I guess the more frustrating areas, I think, as well, for the role of digital in the sense that it's often the benefits that pieces of digital technology could bring could be felt most keenly within that older age group. And yet, by virtue of the poor design decisions which are being made with a lot of this digital stuff, they are excluding some of the people who could benefit most from it, which is incredibly frustrating and short-sighted. So I think it's an area which is right for some progress yeah i mean it's 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 such a good point i think that you know it's just this idea of inclusive design really you know really all design should be mindful of the people um the extreme users as it were i mean it's something that smart have always tried to do you sort of look at the kind of the the experts in an area and the people that would find it the most difficult and um it's something that we've talked about smart the idea of how can you be you know truly inclusive in the digital world how can you you know we, we kind of we kind of did that with the with them um, things like the also the also good grip and which is um yes yeah where i mean that part of the design process of that was to look at it started with um, a woman who had had arthritis and was struggling to use kitchen utensils so obviously her challenges this is all physical but her challenges were you know, being able to grip, being able to to do the right motions, and at the other end of the spectrum, you have um, 
the you know like the high-end chef who needs something that's really really high performance and if you can kind of look at the criteria for both you end up creating something that is really usable by absolutely everybody and Oxo Good Grips has been a very very successful product and something that Smart has been talking we've talked internally about is you know how do you apply that to digital how do you look at one end of the spectrum which is people that are kind of you know that can't see and on a purely uh, mainly digital visual interface uh, what can you do with people that can't you know read all, you know, all, all the things that you need to be able to do and then look at that and then look at the kind of super I don't know tech savvy expert time you know someone that's grown up with digital and can you can you use that kind of process to to be more inclusive in the digital yeah. space yeah. no those kind of extremes are powerful sources of creativity mm. I think well it's a mission for the future it sounds like a, you know, a fascinating journey to be on I hope you'll keep in touch with us and come back on the show perhaps in the future and tell us how it's all, all going we'd love to, to stay in touch with it but um, thank you very much for thank you very taking much for time. Oh, thank you it's been uh, very interesting great thank you very much That's it for this episode. If you'd like the background on anything we talked about, take a look at the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section, where we include links to everything we mentioned, including the summary of Ruby's TV program, The Big Life Fix. We're on Twitter at MexFeed, and you can email your feedback or questions and comments to us at designtalk.com at mobileuserexperience.com. Last but certainly not least, have a think about which of your friends might also enjoy listening to the MEX podcast. You can share the link with them at mobileuserexperience.com where all of our episodes are available for free in the archive. And you can also find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, pretty much wherever else you get good podcasts. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.